appreciative of this opportunity. Uh, first time that I've actually been in your building. Last time we were at the Memorial Gym. And I appreciate so very much the opportunity to present this weekend uh, a series of lessons that I think will, I hope will, encourage us all from God's Word. There are certain uh, personal comments that I can make, but in keeping with the theme of the night, I'm going to make sure that I leave those to another time so we can make it on time uh, to everything we have prepared for this uh, afternoon and evening. Please turn with, your, with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to be studying from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to entitle the sermon uh, this afternoon, God's Prescription for the Good Life from Ecclesiastes. God's Prescription for the Good Life from Ecclesiastes. And certainly, who better to lay out for us what is good for us in terms of how we should live? Who better to give us counsel and guidance and instruction as to what the best life is than the Creator of all the universe and certainly the Creator of us? And so God's prescription for the good life from Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. We'll read down through Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 8. Reading with verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. 12 verse 1. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of hide and of tears in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden, and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loose, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. You know, there is a viewpoint in the world that seems to suggest that religion is really for the old. Now, we, we, don't, we don't expect the young people to get really worked up and really serious about religion. We, we expect young people to go to school and to do well and to prepare themselves for success in a career or a job or a profession, and we want to focus on that. And, of course, we expect young people to have their fun and spend a lot of time with their friends, and then they graduate from college and, or they go to trade school and they get into their jobs and they do really well and they're focused on that. This is the problem of their life. They've got vigor. They've got strength. They've got vision. And they're just making their way and building up the 401K, building up a retirement, trying to have the American dream, get married, have a few kids, and see your kids grow up, and then you become empty nesters, and finally you retire, and then, ha <laughs> it's time for religion. It's time to get serious about God. After you've spent all of your life doing exactly what you wanted to do, at the very end, we're going to give God His due. That's a more prevalent view than you probably realize. A lot of people, now they may not say it that way, but the way we live our lives many times 
focus so exclusively on the success as the world defines it. I remember several years ago, I had an uncle, and dad, my father, really pleaded with him to get serious about his soul. And uh, the response was, he was a young man at that point in time, the response was, you know, I'm in corporate America now, I'm really busy, got some great opportunities, I'm, I'm climbing the ladder, I hear what you're saying, there's a lot of merit to that, but man, I'm just so caught up in this right now, I tell you what, I, I hear you, just, just let me get through this career, and once I retire, I'll have all the time in the world, and I will seriously investigate these things you're telling me from God's Word. But that's just going to have to wait, I've got some other things going on right now. He died at 37. He died at 37. He never got to retire. He never got to that point. See, we, we sometimes think that religion is just for the old, but religion is for us all. And that's the point I want to emphasize in this lesson for the young as well. That the time to get serious about serving God is now. If you have any understanding whatsoever of the things we're talking about, then you need to get serious about your service to God. And Ecclesiastes tells us that. That's part of the prescription for a good life. In fact, let's make that our first point. Start serving God early in life. Start serving God early in life. Go back to that passage that we read and notice the, the focus on the young. Verse 9, Rejoice, what, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you when in the days of your youth. Go down to chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your Creator. When? In the days of your youth. Look at verse 6. Remember your Creator. When? Before the silver cord is loose. All of these are telling us young people get serious about God. When it says remember God, it's not talking about just an intellectual ascent. It's just not saying let the thought of God cross your mind from time to time. But he's saying acknowledge God as your Creator and live in such a way that you honor Him as such. In other words, you are living obediently to God. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. The very opposite of what the world is trying to tell us. Young people, serve God. Start early. He says, remember your Creator in these days where you have so much energy and zeal and enthusiasm and possibilities and your life is not as burdened as it will be later with certain responsibilities. He says, you remember your Creator right now in the days of your youth. We need to learn to start to serve God early in life. It's so important. That's a message. You may say, hey, well, Kevin, that ship has sailed for me. Well, that's fine, but you can encourage young people to get serious about their service. We expect young people to study God's Word. We expect young people to understand God's Word. We expect young people to be involved in teaching. We expect them to be obedient to God's Word. We expect them to be fervent in their prayer life. We expect them to be helping the needy. All of those things. You don't get a pass because you're young. <laughs> Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. So very important. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. God's prescription for the good life, you start serving God early in life. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
verses 12 through 16. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 16. The Bible says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Why? That your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Does this sound like young people get a pass on religion? Does this sound like young people are not expected to be serious about religion? The very opposite. He says, you be an example, Timothy. You're a young man. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Don't let anybody despise you because you're aged. To the very contrary, I tell you what you do. You be an example to everybody. You be a model. You show people how a Christian ought to be in word and in conduct and purity and faith and love. You demonstrate that. And folks, if you've been around any period of time, you've seen that. And it's a beautiful thing when you see young people who are modeling to others what Christ is supposed to be living in your lives. There's a young guy at the Oak Mountain Congregation, and uh, several years ago he came to me and kind of wanted to be mentored uh, about some things in terms of you know working out your salvation in a professional environment. And I was excited about the opportunity to do that, but the more times that we met, and the more times we got together, and the more times we shared thoughts over a meal, I realized that something was happening. I was learning from him. <laughs> he was modeling these things. He was doing like Timothy. He was being an example to the believers in word and conduct and faith and purity. Friends, it is possible to do that. He told Timothy, you give attention to reading. You give attention to exhortation. You give attention to doctrine. Young people need to be serious. Young people need to know about the doctrinal issues that arise from the Word of God. Young people need to be involved in having discussions and Bible studies with people out in the world. We don't say, well, you know, y'all just be quiet and do your thing over there, and the serious folks, the older folks, we'll go over here and we'll handle these things. No. Everybody is to be involved. You're to understand the basis for your salvation. We are to teach our children to understand the basis of the, their salvation. We are to reason with them and teach them how to reason from the Scriptures. Sometimes I worry that we try to hand all of our uh, uh, children the conclusions on a silver platter and we don't teach them how to reach those conclusions. Reasoning from the Scriptures, as Paul did, as was his custom when he went to the synagogue. Make your faith your own. Be serious. Start early in life. Think about this young man, Timothy. An impressive man. In fact, where did this thing start? Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Look at where this all started for Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Listen to this. And that from childhood. Now, underscore that. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God is proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. No, a young person cannot understand the Bible. A young person cannot understand the deep things of God's Word. And from childhood, you have understood the Holy Scriptures. That's exactly what Paul said by inspiration. That this young man, you get that? 
from childhood was able to read and understand God's Word. And it made him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Don't tell me that young people are not capable of understanding. We sell them short. We do them a disservice. We need to teach them the Word of God. All aspects of the Word of God. There's nothing that is beyond their comprehension. We're going to present it to them. You say, well, you've got to be understand age appropriate. But this is a young man who is described as knowing the Holy Scriptures from childhood. Who taught him that? Who taught him the Holy Scriptures? How was he exposed? Did he just, on his own, just pick up the Scriptures and start reading? Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible says, when I call, this is Paul addressing Timothy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded as in you also. There it is. How did this young man know the Scriptures from childhood? Because his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, taught him. They had the faith first, and Paul says, I'm convinced the same genuine faith that was in your grandmother, the same genuine faith that was in your mother, is in your heart and your mind because of the teaching they did. That's impressive. That, that's very encouraging. I know sometimes we... We worry a lot. We should worry about the disintegration of the family. We worry about the absence of men, godly men, leading the family as they should. And we should be worried about that. But let me say this. The absence of a godly man does not excuse us from our duty of bringing up our children in the way that they should go. Because right here, there's no mention of Timothy's fault. No, no mention of that. In fact, in Acts 16, it says that his mother was a believer... And just as his father was a Greek man, by implication he was not. And yet those two women, the grandmother and the mother, were able to bring up that young man in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's an encouragement to any woman out there. Even if you don't have the man that you need to have, you do your job to bring your child up in the training and admonition of the Lord. But the point is, is that we've got to start serving God early in life. And there's so many benefits to that. There's so many wonderful things about that. You know, one of the things that I have noticed, sometimes I have occasion to have conversations with people who obeyed the gospel late in life. People that are far older, maybe in their 60s and 70s, and I'm not saying that's super old, but it's older. Uh, that's a moving target for me. My dad's 75, and I don't think that's old anymore. Used to, but not now. But, but, I've talked to those people who have obeyed God late in life. And there's a common thread in that discussion when we talk about their conversion experience. They say that they understand that they have salvation. They understand that they're a member of the Lord's church. They understand that they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They understand they have the hope of eternal life. But at the same time, they say, you know what? I'm ashamed that I wasted so many years of my life. So many years. The best of what I had when I was younger and stronger and more energetic and had so many opportunities, I wasted it on selfishness and living for Satan and not living for God. And that's a regret that they have to deal with. And it's a common thing for those who obey the gospel late in life. Again, we're not questioning that their salvation is secure. 
And we're not questioning that they have the hope of eternal life, but I'm just telling you there's a practical component. When you recognize what God has done for you, you recognize your need for a salvation, and that recognition is late in life, and you have to look back at all those years in your teens and your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s that you did nothing, nothing for God. That's a terrible burden to bear. But you don't have to bear it if you remember God in the days of your youth. You don't have to bear that if you start serving God early in life. That's one of the benefits. You don't have to worry about the regrets of those wasted years. It's very true that there are so many things that young people can do for God. And we need to take advantage of that. We need to unleash that power. You know, most congregations I've been to, most of the conversions, you know what age group they tend to come from? It's from the young people. <laughs> it's among the teenagers. It may be different here, but places, most places I've been, that's been the case. So think about that. The harvest is plentiful, but the labor is a few. You've got a great opportunity. You've got these kids that are coming up. They're trying to come to grips with themselves and their place in the world. And you have a great opportunity to steer them towards the gospel. They may not have heard the gospel. They may have heard a perverted gospel. Or they may sometimes, young people, grow up in a home that doesn't have religion at all. What a great opportunity. And you've got time. <laughs> you've got so much time, you don't realize how much time you have to study God's Word, to meditate on God's Word, to search these things out. Study them now. The difficult things, study them now. Because as you go on, you pick up other responsibilities and it becomes harder and harder. No excuse ever for not studying, but it becomes harder and harder to delve into some of those things. What a great opportunity you have. But let me give you a second advantage of starting to serve God early in life. And that's this. Serving God is the best life. And because it's the best life, it's a blessing. And the longer you spend your life serving God, the more of a blessing it is. I think we've got to be careful. I think sometimes we present Christianity kind of like this, and we say, well, you know, yeah, Christianity is drudgery, it's awful, it's terrible, you can't do this, you can't watch that, you can't listen to this, and Oh, it's just this terrible burden, and you just go through life not enjoying anything, but once we die and go to heaven, ah, we're happy, wonderful. That's a distortion, folks. That's a distortion because of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 8, the Bible says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness, listen to this, but godliness is proper what for all things. Now this is, listen to this. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And we focus on that which is to come. And yes, that's precious. Yes, that's wonderful. Yes, that motivates us. Yes, that's our goal. But did you notice he says, having the promise of the life that now is. Saying that there's a blessing. Just obeying God in of itself is a blessing here. We can put aside heaven for a second. That's a wonderful thing. But he's saying, even here, doing things God's way is a blessing. That's the way it needs to be presented. That's the way our young people need to hear. That's the way we need to talk. That's the way we need to feel. That God is not arbitrarily throwing down some commands and see, ah, let's see what they do with this one. No. Deuteronomy 6.24 says that the commandments of God are for our good always. 
What God says to do is the best way to live. If God says something is prohibited, we're not missing out on something because we don't do it. (laughs) And if God says that we should do something, then we better get about doing it. It's the best life. I, I see some people and they just, they just caught up in sin and doing this and doing that and they think they're free. They think it's wonderful and it's all this drama, constant drama. I don't know about you folks, I don't want drama in my life. <laughs> if that's what drama is, I want no part of that. I want the quiet, simple life that Paul talked about. And that's what you get from godliness. I'm not saying it's always easy. You know that's not the case. I'm not saying that it's going to be a cakewalk, but I'm saying the best life, the most fulfilling life, is a life that is lived in accordance with God's will. And I want young people to know that and understand that and internalize that. Don't you feel ashamed because you are following God's Word? And because of that, you don't go to certain functions, and you dress a certain way and don't dress other ways, and you use language that's appropriate, not inappropriate, and you're careful about the movies you go to, and you're careful about what books you read, and you're careful about the songs you listen to and the radio stations. That's wonderful. That's a good life. Don't think of that as tedious drudgery, because you're trying to live a path of righteousness that has what? The promise of the life that now is. And that is something, when you start doing that early, it is a wonderful thing. You can develop some good habits of obedience. Which leads me to a third reason why starting to serve God early in life is a blessing. It will help you not develop habits of disobedience that will make your quest for heaven more difficult. That, that living, starting to serve God early in life will prevent you from de- developing habits of disobedience that are going to make it harder for you to go to heaven. I've talked to so many men in particular, Christian men, who candidly will say there were things that they experimented with, there were things that they tried in their teenage years or their early 20s. And decades, decades from that experimentation, they are still struggling with those sins. I want you to think about that for a second, folks. That you can do something. You can open Pandora's box 16, 17, 18, and as a 50-year-old man, you're still struggling with what you did back in your teenage years. That's why it's good to serve God early. Don't develop those habits of disobedience. When sin gets a hold of you, but we know this, sin is addictive. You don't play with sin. The world wants to say, oh, just, just experiment a little bit. Just got to put your toes in the water and try it. You don't experiment with sin. It enslaves. It captivates. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Hebrews 12, chapter, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight. Now listen to this. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you see how sin was described? The inspired writer of Hebrews says, the sin which so easily ensnares us. You know, 
sin enslaves. It captivates. And he makes the point easily. It's so easy to fall into the power of Satan. And so that's one of the values of serving God early. You don't get caught up in some of those things. You don't get caught up in those activities. You don't develop those habits of disobedience. I remember being in college and having a conversation with a young lady, and she knew that I was a religious person, and she knew that uh, I understood and practiced the biblical teaching against fornication. You don't have uh, sex before marriage. And I guess she was trying to get some brownie points and a gold star, and so she said, look, I've gone six months without having sex. Well, on one level, I'll give her some credit, because obviously she's trying to control the lust of the flesh. I'll give her some credit. But you're not getting a gold star. You're not getting a gold star because that's not God's standard. It's not six months. It's abstinence until you're in a lawful marriage, and that's the only place, according to Hebrews 13:4, where that activity can take place. But see, the problem is, she opened Pandora's box. She started that activity, and it's addictive. Sin, which so easily ensnares us. And then people struggle to do what is right. Just making it that much more difficult to go to heaven. I mean, folks, it's hard enough as it is. Don't make it easier. The devil sits back and laughs at some of us because we make his job easy. Don't create those habits of disobedience. You serve God from the very beginning. Look at John chapter 8, verse 34. John chapter 8, verse 34. Sin is so often portrayed in a wonderful way. Oh, it's such a great activity and it's going to be so liberating and so uh, enriching and so wonderful. And we need to remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered those Jews who actually believed Him but had some serious problems in following the Lord and Savior. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We don't master sin (laughs) by engaging in it. We don't master sin by trying it out. We don't master sin. He says, if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. That, that's the irony of it. They say, oh, we're free. We're, we're liberalized. We can do all this. And this is wonderful. And God says, you know what? They're in slavery. The very opposite of what they think they're doing. Shows you how much the devil can deceive people into thinking the very opposite of what the truth is. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Don't get caught up in alcohol. Don't get caught up in pornography. Don't get caught up in fornication. Don't get caught up in drug use. Don't even get caught up in, in profanity. That's another thing I've noticed. People develop speech patterns early in their life, and then they struggle to get rid of that when they try to mature. Why? Because they've been talking that way all their lives. And friends, it, it's, it's pathetic. I remember having a conversation with uh, one of my co-workers, and she was talking about an adopted grandson at, at, at two at two, who had already heard curse words in the environment and was already using those words. Not sad. At two, doesn't even understand what he's saying. And what do you think he's going to be like if he continues along that path? How difficult is it going to be for him to rein his speech in and speak properly as God would demand? When we start these things, folks, it, it, it haunts us. It's a, it's a deterrent to us walking with God. I made a reference to, to pornography, which is so rampant. So rampant. I, I remember sitting down with a young preacher, and he was telling me, he said, Kevin, pornography is slaying Christian marriages right now. 
right and left. Because it, it used to be that if one wanted to access that material, you had to go to a real bad area town. <laughs> and that in and of itself was a deterrent. We didn't want to be seen there. We didn't want to be there. We didn't want to be around those people. But unfortunately, and I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with technology. Technology is a tool. But unfortunately, Satan has taken advantage of that technology so that now the stuff that you had to go halfway across town to the bad sector of town now is a mouse click away. And friends, I've talked to some people, some young men that candidly said, hey, you know, I, I tried this and my thought was I would do this until I got married and then once I get married, I'll put it away. And you know what? That thing walked right into the marriage with them. They couldn't put it away. It's addictive, folks. Sin is addictive. That's what Jesus is saying. You commit sin, you're a slave of sin. So don't try these things, folks. It's amazing. If you just don't try them, a lot of times you don't see the allure. Because it doesn't have an allure for you. Because you haven't tried it all. But don't think, oh, I can try that. I can master that. I can do a little bit, but uh-uh. You may try that. And as we say, decades later, you may be struggling with the thing that you tried out as a teenager. Start serving God early in life. Let's go to a second point. Talking about God's prescription for the good life from Ecclesiastes. And the first part, point was to start serving God early in life. But my second point is this. From the Scriptures, we have to come to grips with aging and the rapidly closing window of life. Say that again. That we have to come to grips with aging and the rapidly closing window of life. Let's read again Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not dark, and the clouds not return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before, before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the Spirit will return to God. Who gave it? It's time for some straight talk. What we just read is a poetic description of the aging process. And notice that it begins before the difficult days come. So let's just be honest about it. That as we get older, life becomes more difficult. Especially in terms of, as my, one of my partners likes to say, the physical plant. The body gets old. It ages. We can't see as well as we once saw. We can't hear as well as we once heard. We can't move as quickly as we once did. We don't have the same strength we did. We don't recover from things as quickly as we... That's all there. It's describing the deterioration of the body. I, when I read this passage, I can't help but think about this incident. I was in Birmingham and uh, preaching at a congregation that no longer exists in Westwood. Uh, it's in Jasper, Alabama. And there was an elderly brother there well up into his 90s. And they had a Bible class first, and then they had the service uh, thereafter. And at the beginning of the Bible class, it was announced that Brother Manning, who was this uh, gentleman in his 90s, uh, was sick. 
But there wasn't a lot of detail that was offered. I suppose for those that were members of that congregation, they probably knew the situation. But I'm visiting. I don't know. And so I'd grown very fond of Brother Manning. And after the Bible class, we have a a period that we can talk and use a restroom and that sort of thing. And so I went to Brother Manning and I asked him. I said, no, Brother Manning, I heard that you're having some health problems. I was just curious. What's going on? And he kind of paused and peered at me with those glasses and said exactly what Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says is going to happen. Okay. (laughs) That's that. He's saying, look, it's no surprise. I'm in my 90s. I'm going to have health problems because God says the body deteriorates. It ain't getting better. It's getting worse. I guess I should have known that. (laughs) But the point is, that's a realistic picture of life. And we have to come to grips with that. And, and I'll be honest, and, and still at 46, I, I have days where I'm very immature and very childish. I'll just be honest. Sometimes I'm like, I don't want to get old. I don't want to get old. I want to be youngish. I'm not young, but I still want to have the ability to get around on my own. I still want to be able to stand up straight. I still want to be able to hear. I, I still want to have my energy and my enthusiasm. I don't want to get old. I don't want to do it. And then the other part of me says, and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing I can do about it. It's happened to everybody. There's not a, not a single person who's been able to defy the ravages of time through aging. Nobody! <laughs> and so the, the, the grown-up part of Kevin Clark says, okay, that's just part of life. There's nothing you can do about that. But what you can do is to prepare yourself spiritually. What you can do is to make sure that the inner man is being renewed day by day, as is stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We need to come to grips with aging and our rapidly closing window of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There we have it. He says what? The outward man is perishing. This body is perishing. This body is a machine. Like any machine, after so many uses, it's going to wear out. And that's what's happening to us all. Our bodies are wearing out. But he says there's good news. That's not you. That's a point we really need to focus on. I think sometimes we miss that. We look in the mirror, and what we see, we say, that's us. We define ourselves by what we can see in the mirror. And that's not us. <laughs> Do we realize we are spiritual beings that are temporarily housed in these bodies? Temporarily. This is going to go to dust. But our souls will continue to live on. And we get so caught up in this, and we def- and so that's why there's so much money spent on trying to stave off old age and look young and all this kind. Of- Come on, folks. <laughs> so wait, you're not going to beat that. You're not. But what you can do is get that inner man, get that spiritual man built up, make him stronger and stronger every day by reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God and praying more oftenly and more frequently and more fervently and being more involved in teaching others. See, those are the things that really count. They're not going to be physical bodies that go into heaven. And so why do we spend so much time? You know, even Paul, when we read a while ago in 1 Timothy 4.8, what did he say? He said, bodily exercise profits what? A little. 
Now, as one who doesn't exercise, I like that verse. Because <laughs> there's so many of my colleagues who spend so much time and effort and money on exercise. I say the Apostle Paul says, that profits a little, not much. But the focus needs to be on the spiritual man, the spiritual self, your spiritual welfare. Because that's what lasts. That's what's important. So yes, I had a sister one time and look at me. I think she was going through a time of great pain. She says, getting old is no fun. Well, I, I hear it. I hear that. I hear that. But you know, spiritually speaking, as we mature, that ought to be exciting to us. And based on where I'm at in my walk with God, I would not want to go back. I would not want to go back. Because there are some awarenesses now, some appreciation, understandings that I have spiritually I didn't have 20 years ago. And those things are more important than whether I feel like a million bucks and whether I have all the strength in the world and whether I have my hair, which I don't. I mean, it'd be nice to have a full head of hair, and some of y'all do. Some of y'all are going to die with that same set of hair you have. You're blessed. I'm not. But that's okay. That's not important. What's important is what's the condition of my soul. And so that's the point we want to make here is that, yes, we've got to come to grips with the fact that, that life is short. Life is short. Let's look at some passages on that. Look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 7. Life is very short. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The Bible says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Now listen, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. He said our lives are short. Our lives are like what? Like a vapor. These are these gentlemen who say, oh, yeah, we've got some plans and we're going to go to such such place and we're going to live here and we're going to make some money. And yeah, Well, wait a minute. How do you know you're going to live there? That's presumptuous. God hasn't guaranteed you that year. He says your lives are short. They may be gone. You may not get to that year. And I tell you what, the more I open my eyes and the more I listen to things, the more I read, that is so true. Life is so short. People are here today and gone tomorrow. People who seem to be the epitome of health and next day they're gone. That happens, folks. That happens. Life is short. And the point is, use it profitably in the service of our God. We don't know how much time we have. None of us knows. We don't know when we're going to die and we certainly don't know when the Lord's coming back. But the point is, if you don't know that, make the most of our opportunities now. Quit procrastinating. Quit putting things off. If you need to change something in your life, you know when the time to do that is? Right now. If you need to start teaching you haven't been teaching, you know when the time to do that is? Right now. If you haven't been studying your Bible like you should, you know when the time to do that is? Right now. If you haven't been praying like you need to pray, you know when the time to do that is? Right now. Don't wait. Don't be like my uncle. He said, oh, in retirement I'll take care of that and not get that retirement. That's so presumptuous. We don't know how much time we have. Life is short. Look at Job 14, 1 through 2. Job 14, 1 through 2. Life is very short. Job chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. Four, Job 14, 1 through 2. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. You know, I, I, I spend some time sometimes just thinking about how short life is and 
the inevitability of death unless the Lord comes. We all have that appointment, Hebrews 9.27. I do something, and I did it as recently as Thursday. Whenever I drive by a cemetery, a graveyard, I try my best to stop whatever I'm thinking about and to think about the people represented by those gravestones. And I think to myself, you know, on this particular day, it was a sunny day. I'm driving along the highway. I'm going back to the workplace and feeling pretty good. And I think, you know, the people represented by those gravestones, there was a day when they were alive. There was a day when they had sunny skies. There was a day when they laughed and they got to eat barbecue and baked beans and just really enjoy themselves. And yet, no longer. They're gone. And I try to think about that. And one day... Somebody's going to drive by on the interstate and look over, and Kevin Clark's gravestone's going to be over there. It's a sobering thought. But we need to think about that. Because sometimes we live as if we're never going to, to die. But we are. And we need to be prepared for that. And the only way to be prepared for that is spiritual security in Jesus. That's the only way. You know, folks get really worked up. I remember around 9-11... Uh, how worked up I was about the potential threat of terrorism. And I don't know if you remember at that time, they had uh, some things going on with things being very uh, dangerous chemicals being transported in the mail. And they were telling you to watch out if you got one of those letters that look a little bit off because maybe it had a postmark at one place and it was sent for somebody else in another place. And I remember getting a letter that I thought, ooh, that seems like one of those letters. And so I did not open that letter for a long time. Uh, and then I began to think of myself and say, Kevin, wait a minute. You're a Christian. You're, a, you're supposed to be prepared for death. Why all this angst and anxiety about death? I'm not saying Christians have a death wish, but if you read the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he doesn't seem to be particularly troubled by death. In fact, he says it's better to depart and be with Christ. And so we have to start thinking in that way and not be so concerned about these physical lives. It really comes down to a matter of faith, doesn't it? Just how much do we really believe in these things we talk about and the things that we hear and the things we're taught and the things that are proclaimed from the pulpit in our congregation. It's one thing to hear that, but when it comes down to you and your life, how much do you really believe that stuff? That's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. When you're looking at your own mortality... How much do you believe in God? How much do you believe in heaven and hell? How much do you believe in Judgment Day? How much do you believe in the resurrection? How much do you believe in the saving power of the gospel? It gets real then, doesn't it? We need to come to grips with aging and our rapidly closing window of life. Let me give you a third prescription, or part of the prescription for a good life from Ecclesiastes. We need to live. We need to live, all of us, young, old, middle-aged, we need to live with a sense of eternal accountability. We need to live with a sense of eternal accountability. Go back to Ecclesiastes and look at chapter 11, verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. The Bible says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know, listen, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Never let the inevitability of the judgment leave your mind. Yes, enjoy being young. Yes, enjoy the vigor and the strength of youth. Yes, enjoy your friends. Yes, enjoy your family. But know that there's a God in heaven that one day will judge us all. 
And we need to live with an appreciation of that, folks. I think sometimes we forget about that. And remember this about the judge. It's not like judges down here. They're limited in what they can see and what they know and what they understand. But let me tell you about this judge, Hebrews 4.13. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. You need to know this about the judge. You're going to have with a sense of eternal accountability. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Hebrews the fourth chapter and verse 13. The Bible says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees it all. There's no hiding from God. You can hide things from your parents. You can hide things from your grandparents. You can hide things from your spouse. You can hide things from your siblings, although that's pretty tough these days. But, but you know who you can hide from? You cannot hide from God. Everything. Your thoughts, even. The things you do in the dark corner of the room when you think nobody is watching, God is aware of. And we need to remember that, folks. When you, conscious, I've talked, when you consciously think about God sees everything you're doing, it's amazing how it changes your decision-making process. The things that were so alluring, the things that were so tempting, all of a sudden are less alluring and less tempting because you know you're going to be held accountable for that. And we need to live with a sense of accountability. In fact, go back to Ecclesiastes. The book ends with that point. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. The Bible says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We need to remember that. There's a judgment day that's coming, folks. And we're all going to stand accountable for how we lived, how we talked, how we dressed, what movies we went to, what books we read, what magazines we subscribed to, how we interact with our spouse, how we interact with our parents, how we interact with our teachers. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. All of these things, everything we do, laid bare to the judge who's going to hold us accountable. And accountability here is not uh, flunking a test or having to repeat a grade. It's your eternal destiny. And so we need to live with a sense of that accountability. Know that we're going to be judged and live accordingly. Live in a way that's righteous. Live in a way that's holy. Live in a way, and here's the thing, we can do it. That's that, we can do it. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that with every temptation, it's a great promise from God to Christians, with every temptation there's a what? There's a way of escape. There's a way of escape. Now think about that for a second. That's really profound. Every time you as a Christian are tempted, there's a way for you to resist that temptation. And it's a blessing, and it's a promise, and it's wonderful, but there's another edge to that too. It makes us what? Accountable. Accountable. Nobody's going to say, well, I just couldn't help it. I just had to sin. had no choice. It's just inevitable. And, and sometimes I, we've got to be really careful when we pray and some of the things we say in prayers. Because sometimes I hear prayers and it almost sounds like the man leading the prayer is suggesting that sin is just inevitable. We're just going to be sinning all the time. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. First Corinthians 10, 13. God says there that every time you're tempted, there's a way of escape. So if there's a way of escape for every temptation, I sin, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault who made me this way? Or is it my fault? It's my fault. <laughs> I've got to take responsibility and ownership for my sin. 
So that's a great promise, but it's also a sense of accountability. And so there we have it, a prescription for the good life from Ecclesiastes. We need to first start serving God early in life. So many blessings to serving God early. You know, I've noticed with my kids, I may have done them a disservice. We didn't start out and pick a sport for them and make sure they started from the crib playing that. But evidently, some parents do. And so both my son and my oldest daughter are experiencing this. They, kind of late to basketball, are playing against people who literally have been playing since they were two or three years old. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if somebody's been playing since they're two or three years old and you're starting at nine or ten, you're at a disadvantage. (laughs) You're at a disadvantage. But think about this. That principle, how much more true is it when it comes to spiritual things? If you take a child and train up in the way that he should go, you train up a young lady in the way that she should go, if she's used to studying, she's used to uh, having Bible studies, she's used to seeing you have Bible studies, have people in your home, she's used to seeing the hospitality that you display to fellow Christians, she's used to having conversations with you about the deeper things of the gospel, how much further along is she going to be when she's 18, 19, 20 than somebody who's never gotten serious about God until they're in their 20s? It's a huge advantage. Start serving God now. That foundation, that's the greatest legacy that a parent can leave for a child, is to instill in their hearts a love for God, putting God first, making it the most important thing. We'll talk some more about that uh, at 7 o'clock. But that is starting to serve God early in life is one of the greatest blessings that we can experience. And so if we pass that time, let's encourage those around us, the young people around us, to get serious about God. Get serious about your service. But not only that, we need to come to grips with their aging process and our rapidly closed window of life. Folks, we just have a short amount of time. And we've got to make the most of it. It really is amazing. I look here at 46, I'm like, hmm, okay. Probably over half of my life I already lived. And that seemed to go by pretty fast. Except for the first 20 years, that was kind of slow. But after that, it got, it's sped up. And it keeps speeding up. And I just think, you know, 10, 20, and where I'm going to be, and I'm like, Wow. It really is a vapor. It really is quick. We don't have a whole lot of time. But the takeaway from that is not despair. The takeaway of that is not depression. The takeaway from that is not, oh, this is, let's make the most of what we have. Whatever time we have. The time outside of our souls is the most precious commodity we have because it's non-renewable. Think about that. If you take, if you spend some money, what can you do? Go out, work, and get some more money, right? If you spend some time, can you get that time back? No, it's gone. That day is gone. You'll never get that day again. And whatever our days are, they're rapidly running out. And we better make sure we're prepared for that. And yes, the last point, the last part of God's prescription for a good life, live with a sense of eternal accountability. All of us are going to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day. All of us are going to be judged for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11 says. We just need to be prepared for that, folks. That's the greatest test that's ever going to be presented to us. Yes, I don't know about you, son. I have this recurring dream of failing a test because I forgot about some class and showed up and somebody told me I had a test today. But that's one thing. But if you fail this test, if you fail the test of eternal life, it is going to be the most sorrowful, the most horrific, the most catastrophic event that could ever happen to a human being. And that is to be condemned to hell for all eternity. That is a cost that's too high to pay. And the good thing is you don't have to pay. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you. The only way that you can avoid that cost, the only way you can avoid that outcome, 
is you've got to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that the Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9 says that Jesus is going to come back with his angels and exercise fiery vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to know God and I want to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ so I can avoid that fate. You say, what does that mean? Well, we've got to hear the gospel message. Hear the message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, lived as a man, was tempted in all points, and we are yet without sin, went to the cross willing, the perfect sacrifice for sins, and spread that divine, or yielded up that divine blood, died, was raised three days later from the dead, and lived among men for about 40 days, and was taken up uh, into heaven to the right hand of God, where He will continue to reign until uh, He delivers the kingdom back to God. Do you believe that? Do you believe it so much that it will compel you to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe it so much that it compels you to repent of your former way of life? There has to be change. You cannot live the way you've been living. You cannot walk the way you used to walk. You can't talk the way you used to talk. You don't dress the way you used to dress. You don't go to the same movies you used to go to. You don't talk and think about the things you used to talk and think about. You don't spend your money in the same way that you did. It is a complete and total transformation. Sometimes we'll say, oh, that person's almost there. He's almost got it. He's just a good person. Just a little bit of tweaking and he'd be a Christian. Wrong! It is a fundamental transformation in that person's life. I don't care. You and I may look at them and say, oh, they're good. God says, there's no one good. None. They need that transforming power that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And yes, if you've heard the gospel message and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and repent of your former way of life, yes, you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's not sprinkling and that's not pouring. And I don't have to cite Barton W. Stone. I'm not going to cite Alexander Campbell or Thomas Campbell. You know what I'm going to cite? I'm going to cite the Scriptures. God's Word. Because even the word baptizo in the Greek means to immerse. If one is going to do what the Bible prescribes, then you're going to be immersed. And we're not going to argue about that. We'll just do what the Lord says. And when we're immersed, we contact the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away of our sins. We come up out of that watery grave, a new creature in Christ. And you know what God does? He does a wonderful thing. He adds us to His one true church. And he added to the church daily those who are being saved, Acts 247. And then we start the work of God, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10 says that's the very reason Jesus came. And we take Jesus' mantle, what he wanted to do, what his mission was, and we make it our own. We seek and save that which is lost. And while we do that, let's reference a passage we talked about earlier, 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul says, take heed unto yourself and to the doctrine. Let's make sure that as we teach right, let's make sure that we also live right. Much harm has been done to the cause of Christ by people who teach right, but live hypocritically. And folks can't see the message because of the messenger. Don't fall into that trap. And then have the hope of eternal life that motivates you. And with that hope, folks, there's nothing in this universe that Satan can throw at you that can knock you off your game. Nothing. Not disease, not illness. Not dysfunctionality, not loss of job, not loss of loved ones, nothing. Not saying it's going to be easy, not saying there won't be mourning, not saying there won't be difficulties, but nothing should knock us out of our relationship with God once we have established that through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, our question to you is this. Where do you stand with God right now? Where do you stand with God right now? If Jesus were to come back right now, where would you stand? Are you going to be consigned to hell for all eternity? Or are you going to live with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and all of God's people 
and bliss and eternity in heaven. You can change that. If you're in jeopardy of your soul right now, you can change that tonight. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. What do we say today? We don't know how much time we have, but we have this moment. If anyone's subject to that invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand, as we sing.